An Undeceptions podcast. Yeah, this is Sandy Kaminsky. I want to talk to Dr. Wexler. It's concerning my prostate. That's all you need to know. Sure, I'll hold. If I could hold, it wouldn't be a problem. Come here, I need your opinion. Hang on. It's important. Just give me a minute. Who are you talking to? Trying to get through to my urologist. You mean our urologist? All right, sure, fine. You had no urologist, I gave you mine. Yes, hi. Okay, well, as soon as you hear from him, could you have him call me? Thank you. No results yet. Uh, Schrodinger's prostate. What? At the moment, you both do and do not have cancer. What a joy you are. That's a funny moment from the Golden Globe winning TV show, The Kaminsky Method, starring Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Douglas and Arkin play Sandy and Norman. They're two Hollywood success stories who are coping with their decline as they grow older, physically and professionally. Together, they navigate a much younger world while critiquing each other's journey to the final curtain. The Kaminsky Method is one of those shows about growing older you can describe as funny because it's true. Or at least that's what director Mark tells me. It's not the only Hollywood examination of growing older. The Golden Girls, Grace and Frankie, Going in Style, The Bucket List, Last Vegas, Space Cowboys, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and the list goes on. Each of these asks audiences to believe that older people still have lots to give and get from life before they shuffle off this mortal coil. But do we believe it? There are plenty of signs we're trying to run away from ageing, or at least cover its wrinkles. The global cosmetics market is worth between $300 and $540 billion in 2022, and it's expected to grow by 3 to 7% each year until 2030. We aim to train age away. Worldwide, adults aged 35 to 54 are the equal largest group at the gym, 31% of an estimated 185 million gym junkies. And when all else fails, we turn to surgery. According to the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, the most common cosmetic procedure for men and the second most popular for women is eyelid surgery. And that's before we introduce the D word. Not death, but dementia. Which in our ageing society is on a staggering rise. The ageing process is one of the most fundamental facts of our world and of our lives individually. There's nothing we can do about it. So denial, avoidance, reversal, just aren't options. We need to find a better strategy than closing our surgically enhanced eyes to the fact of growing old. I'm a 55-year-old John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions.
This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash Undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. When dementia makes a man aggressive or irritable, should he be treated like a naughty child? If a woman no longer can dress herself or hold a conversation, is she any less valuable to society? And if a person forgets their own name and story, are they any less human? These are the sorts of questions asked by Professor John Swinton. Dr. Swinton is at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and is an internationally renowned expert in the fields of pastoral care and counselling with a special focus on the elderly and mental health. He's got numerous books and scholarly articles under his belt, including Christianity and Disability, Reimagining Personhood, Dementia, Culture and Citizenship, and Dementia, Living in the Memories of God. John, thank you so much for joining us. You're the founder of the Aberdeen University Centre for Spirituality, Health and Disability. I guess I want to ask, what on earth is that? And what drew you to that work specifically? (laughs) It's a very good question. What on earth is that? Because university centres can mean all sorts of things. But basically, it's a research centre that focuses on the theology of disability, the relationship between spirituality and healthcare uh, and mental health and theology. So these are the three kind of main areas that we focus in. But it's research, academic research that's designed for practice. So we do, and, and most of the work that we do is interdisciplinary. So we work with nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, all sorts of different kinds of people to kind of get a sense of um, what theology is, what theology means in these contexts, and how we can actually use theology to bring about a change of perspective within the area of health and social care. So that's what the centre is. What all these different components are is a different question, but uh, we'll maybe get into that. Yeah, sure. I'm fascinated that there would be a mainstream university like Aberdeen that has all this creepy stuff like spirituality and theology (laughs) as a discipline. I thought uh, Richard Dawkins told us that these are not real disciplines. Yes, he did tell us that, but uh, he's told us many things, and some are true and some are not so true. That's one of the not so true. One of the beauties of Aberdeen, and indeed the university system in the UK, is that theology, or divinity really, is one of the founding disciplines of the university, and it's survived over the years as something that's considered to be significant. It's significant because intellectually it's it's an, an interesting, important area to be thinking about, and in particular the humanities in relation to things like medicine is very, very important because it brings a dimension to medicine that's very important. So hence, for example, here we have a a humanities module that all medical students have to do. 
that really brings him into contact with the humanities and a different way of thinking about what it means to be human. But also, one of the reasons why it's survived over time is because it's, it's successful. You know, a lot of people are still very interested in theology, a lot of people are still very interested in spirituality, and even within secular disciplines such as nursing and medicine, which is my area, the idea of spirituality coming into the conversation, and more and more theology as well, is now kind of accepted as mainstream. And the reason it's mainstream is it pushes against a way of thinking about human beings as just biological creatures that have no meaning other than, as Dawkins would say, to produce the genes and to produce themselves or reproduce themselves. And that human beings are rich and deep and beautiful in many important ways. And I think culturally, if we forget that, we end up with well, perhaps a culture like we have just now, where human beings are downgraded in, in significant ways. So holding on to divinity within the academy is actually very important, just for education, but also for culture. Do you feel that there are particularly important spiritual questions that emerge from the topic we're talking about today, ageing? Yeah, there are. I mean, if you think about spirituality, which is obviously it's a very diverse context concept within society but effectively what spirituality does is tries to answer four key questions who am i where do i come from where am i going to and why and these are questions that all of us ask implicitly or explicitly throughout our lives but when you get to certain crisis points in life they become really sharp so when you you know for example if you have a diagnosis of something like cancer or dementia or something like that then these questions who am i where do i come from where am i going to and why become really sharp because the things that you thought you were before actually it turns out that you're not, or at least you seem to be losing the things that you, you held on to as central to your life. So finding ways of answering these questions becomes acutely important. And in relation to aging, there are certain crisis points, just by the fact that you get old, one of which is retirement. Because the way that people ask, answer these questions, who am I, where do I come from, where am I going to and why, within a kind of capitalist society like our own is through work. So that work gives you your identity. And the problem with retirement is that you wake up the next day and you're not the person you were the day before. And so you have an existential crisis, which very often leads to depression or frustration, all sorts of things. And so the way that our society is structured actually means that spiritual questions at certain points in the aging process become deeply important. The question is, how do we answer them? Demographically, our world is getting older. The median or midpoint age in the US, for example, rose from 35.3 in the year 2000 to 38.9 in 2022. It doesn't sound like much, but it has a massive result at the other end of life. Worldwide, the average person can now expect to live beyond their 60s. In fact, in 2020, the number of people 60 years and older outnumbered children younger than five years. By 2030, one in six people in the world will be aged 60 years or older. And by 2050, the world's population of people over 60 will double to just over 2 billion. Not surprisingly, aged care is becoming an increasingly large consumer of a nation's resources. Members of the OECD spend an average of 1.5% of their gross domestic product on just long-term care, 
in my home country of Australia, that's roughly $22 billion a year. And that's not counting the medical, pharmaceutical or surgical care for the elderly. Beyond the physical, though, John Swinton has been advocating with some success for what he calls spiritual care. He writes and lectures extensively on this topic, and he's been involved in creating an international tool for training professionals and volunteers to enhance the spiritual health of ageing people. The Spiritual Care Series will help you gain the skills needed to offer thoughtful, relevant spiritual support to those involved in the ageing journey. Uh, one of the tragic statistics um, for people who are getting old is the number of older people who are depressed, who are anxious and ultimately who commit suicide. Now that indicates very strongly that, that ageing can become meaningless. So what we want to do is to think of ways, creative ways, of enabling people to retain their sense of self, worth, value, their sense of meaning and purpose and hope. Professor John Swinton is a world... Researcher Al will put a link to the course in the show notes. So society is beginning to throw a lot of resources at ageing. But how are we coping with the idea itself? Do you think we're getting better in the West or worse? at thinking about and representing the aging process? My general sense is we're, we're not getting any better because we're still not facing up to the reality that we're mortal in that sense. And I think that kind of underpins some of the difficulties you have about getting old. And so the, the questions that aging raises in relation to what our lives mean, what beauty is, what vitality means, what the future expectations of who you are means, these are not really questions that are answered well because we're always looking backwards. Even the simple, the simple act of I don't know, dyeing your hair or 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 you know, having Botox in your face is a push backwards to a way that you think you should have been. Like, which means we're always avoiding the future and the reality that actually in the future all of us will shift and change. The question is how can we manage that change effectively? And I think there's not enough guidance as to how we can age positively. Even in the context of something as difficult as dementia, I think there's, there's not enough guidance given as to how we can live well in complex situations. What happened to her mom? I don't know. What happened to her? The body has decomposed. How quickly can that happen? Seven years. But she just died. Wait, where are the kids? Trent! Kara! Come here! Hey, have you seen my children? Mom? I'm, I'm right here. Dad, why are you looking at me like that? Welcome to thriller director M. Night Shyamalan and his idea of a nightmare setting. A beautiful beach where everyone grows old. Old, the film, is set in a swanky resort not Florida, where the privileged can be dropped off on a pristine beach to enjoy it all by themselves. Only in this case, it turns out that the tropical location is aging them at an alarming rate. The film relies more on jump scares and makeup effects than plot and acting. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a rating of just 50, and the audience score isn't much better. 
except for director Mark, who puts it in his top three all-time favourite films. The film gets the point across. Getting old fast is scary. It's got a lot to do with how we see ourselves. One term that you've mentioned, you're not the only one to have mentioned it, is hyper-individualism and the effect this has on our view of the human person. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what you mean by hyper-individualism? I mean, in in a sense, it's self-explanatory, but what do you specifically mean? And how does that undermine what it is to be a person? Well, hyper-individualism is simply the, 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 the way that we tend to think, or many of us tend to think, that we are who we are because of who we are. And so it's our own freedom and choice and autonomy that is important. And if you begin to lose these things, then it becomes a challenge to who you are as a person and indeed who you may perhaps who you are as a human being. So hyper-individualism means you, you, you may need other people for certain things, but you're not dependent on them that way because you are who you are because of your biology, because of your psychology and the way you think and who you are. Whereas in reality, this is something that was brought to the fore very clearly through the pandemic, is that we're relational beings. We're interconnected at an individual level, we're interconnected at a political level, a global level. And the idea that we are kind of hyper-individualistic in that sense is simply not true. And it's palpably not true. We may still hold on to that because the fact that something's not true doesn't mean that we don't, we don't continue to believe it. But in reality, we are persons in relationship, even in the way that our, our, our physiology grows and develops. You know, your, your brain requires other people in order for it to develop. You won't learn to speak unless somebody speaks to you because that, that part of your brain that's necessary for speech needs somebody to speak to you before it can function and go into that sense. So even at a neurological and biological level, we are independent. So I think that the idea of individualism is deceptive. And presumably compounds the problems of ageing. If we're separate from one another, there is not that community that people really need toward the end. That's that's exactly right. And so because the older, one of the sad things, perhaps for all of us for different reasons, is that the older you get, the smaller your social circle becomes. Uh, so, you know, go back to the issue of retirement, you suddenly lose a lot of the people that were around you day by day by day. And then you're narrowed to whatever friends you have at the golf club or at church or wherever you are. And then eventually these people die off as well. And so you're, you're gradually moving towards a situation where you're, you, you suddenly become an individual and then you recognize that that's not the way that you want to be, which I think is one of the reasons why things like depression and anxiety are so prevalent in elderly people because they don't have the social and psychological resources around them that can help them to feel part of something, a sense of belonging in that way. And the mobility of modern society, of course, exacerbates this problem. I mean, for most of human history, the elderly lived up until their deaths in the home of the wider family unit. Yeah. And what a joy that must have been toward the end. Yeah. But we hardly do that anymore. No, we don't do it enough. I mean, it also must have been quite difficult because if you have a small house and you have seven people living in that house, one of whom is elderly and, and struggling, uh, that would have been difficult. But there's something beautiful about the idea that you, you're no longer taken from your community. You're always part of your community. What's the best tea to drink on a daily basis? Wine. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you roll. 
I have found that most of what people think lead to a long, healthy life is misguided or just plain wrong. What if we could reverse engineer longevity? I spent the last 20 years trying to do just that. These people live to 100 at the highest rates in the world. And these secrets could help every one of us to get every good year we can get out of this body of ours. That is the promise of Blue Zones. That's the Netflix doco series, Blue Zones. Blue Zones is an expression coined by the demographers Gianni Pez and Michelle Pellane, and it refers to geographic locations where the world's oldest people seem to be doing pretty well. Their technical work was published as The Blue Zones, Areas of Exceptional Longevity Around the World, in the journal Population and Development Review, back in 2005. The region with the highest concentration of male centenarians, men who live to 100 years, is Sardinia's New Oro province. Since that study, best-selling author Dan Buettner, a National Geographic fellow, ran with the idea of blue zones and has since identified four other locations, Okinawa, Nicoya, Ikaria and Loma Linda. The elderly people in these places apparently have high levels of energy. Butner has built quite a business probing what helps these hundred-year-old men and women last so long and live such fruitful lives. Now, the science apparently isn't perfect. Okinawa, for example, doesn't actually have accurate records of age because most of the records were lost during World War II. But one interesting thing has to do with the factors identified as keys to ageing well. There's a neat little Venn diagram we'll put in the show notes, and at the centre of the Venn are spiritual things like family and social engagement, as well as legumes, peas, lentils and the like. I've been doing some intercultural work recently on, on ageing. And one of the things that's very clear in, in certain Indigenous people, for example, that the idea of kinship is really, really important, that you are part of, of, of a wider group and who you are is how you locate yourself within that wider group. And, and the older you get, you don't lose yourself in that sense. You, you simply become part of that community in a different way. And that's something I think that either we've lost or never had in, in uh, cultures like like our own, which tend to be so individualistic and so uh, dependent on, or so so respectful of auto- autonomy and freedom and doing your own thing. We'll hear from someone in a bit who reckons our obsession with autonomy is what's driving the growing acceptance of euthanasia for the elderly and infirm. And one great threat to autonomy is Dementia. This episode of Underceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Jesus and the Powers, by N.T. Wright and Underceptions' favourite, Mike Bird. Should Christianity have anything to do with politics? I mean, you could argue that Christians have done more harm than good once they get a whiff of power. 
Mike Bird and N.T. Wright address this question and other questions in this magnificent overview of the political implications of the Christian faith and the church's historical engagement with the powers and principalities. They shed light on current geopolitical events and ask, what would it look like if there were a faithful Christian response to crises like the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the China-Taiwan tension, political turmoil in the US, UK and Australia, and the problem of Christian nationalism? They build a pretty convincing case that Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God confronts all forms of power, Christian and atheist, and calls on us all to support a pluralistic democracy where everyone, regardless of religion or irreligion, has a role to play in working toward the good of society. Whether you're a believer or a skeptic, I'd say this book will be an eye-opener. You can order Jesus and the Powers on Amazon, of course, or head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions to dig a little deeper and see if you really like it. That's zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. What about me? Um, who exactly am I? You, you're Anthony. Anthony. Yes. Anthony is a nice name. Anthony, don't you think? It's a very nice name. My mother gave it to me, I imagine. <laughs> Do you know her? Who? My mother. She. No. Oh. She has. Huh. She has such big eyes. I can see her face now. She was... I hope she'll uh, come and see me sometime. Do you think, Mummy? You were saying she might come occasionally at the weekend. Your daughter? No. <laughs> Mummy. <laughs> I want my mummy. I want my mummy. I want to get out of here. That's Sir Anthony Hopkins in the film The Father, a role that earned him the Academy Award for Best Actor. He was the oldest nominee ever to pick up an Oscar. Hopkins' heart-rending performance highlights the plight of people living with dementia. According to the World Health Organization, there are currently more than 55 million people living with dementia worldwide. And there are nearly 10 million new cases every year, the most common form being Alzheimer's. Dementia is currently the seventh leading cause of death and one of the major causes of disability and dependency among older people. And those figures represent a hefty cost to our global community. In 2019, the calculated cost of caring for people with dementia for roughly five hours a day by family members and close friends topped 1.3 trillion US dollars. And women are the most affected, both directly and indirectly. Women experience more years shaped by dementia and a higher mortality rate. 
but they also provide 70% of the hours of caring for other people with dementia. Can you give us a reasonably accurate definition of dementia? It's more than just getting old and forgetful, right? It is, yes. It is. I mean, dementia is really, it's an umbrella term for a, a number of different conditions. Effectively, it's, it's brain damage that comes through aging or comes through some kind of trauma to, to the brain. And that will manifest itself in different ways, depending on which part of the brain is, is affected. So something like frontal lobe dementia, the frontal lobe is part of your brain that kind of helps you to control your thoughts and your, your articulation of your thoughts. Like, when that begins to break down, then people will say things and, and, and act in ways that they wouldn't normally do so. Something like vascular dementia, where over time, if you don't get enough exercise or if you don't, if you eat badly, the blood vessels in your brain restrict. You, you'll have memory loss and you'll have cognitive confusion, likewise for Alzheimer's and so on and so forth. But the key thing is that it's, it's to do with some kind of degeneration of the brain that manifests itself in memory loss, cognitive problems, unusual behaviour and, and so on and so forth. And how does it relate to the other word you hear often, especially in the US, Alzheimer's? Then are they exactly the same thing or is Alzheimer's a version of dementia or is dementia a version of Alzheimer's? Well, that's a good question. There's lots of reasons why you would you would answer that, different ways you'd answer that question. Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. Uh, it's a particular form that uh, it's, it's, it's difficult because it, it it's very destructive to the brain in a way that perhaps vascular dementia isn't always as destructive in that sense. So it's, it's a form of, of dementia, but it's a form of dementia that culturally has become the... Um, the main way in which many people talk about dementia. So the two terms are conflated, but they're actually not the same. Right. Do we think that dementia is becoming more common or are we just more aware of it in, uh, you know, in recent decades? I think it's both, actually. I mean, we are more aware of it. Um, but I think that because people are, are uh, living longer, there seems to be an increase, an ongoing increase in dementia. So although dementia is not a natural product of aging, the older you get, the more likely and prone you are to having some kind of dementia experience in that sense. So I think worldwide it is becoming a growing issue. The loss of memory that usually comes with dementia can look very different for different people. But memory is more than just a list of electrical impulses that bring information and skills to mind. The ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus is credited as saying, memory is the mother of all wisdom, because it's our memory that holds all the information that forms the basis of a wise life. The ancients also saw memory as the mother of the muses, that is, mother of creativity and the arts. This is because for the artists to be truly free in their craft, whether painting or poetry or music, there has to be a great storehouse of learning, as Plutarch puts it, in the memory. More existentially, memory provides the context for our lives. The great Roman statesman Cicero wrote, the life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living. He's saying there's a sense in which we preserve our departed loved ones in our memory. It's a concept John Swinton picks up in his book, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God. Even people without personal memory 
are remembered and they're held intact, not just by their loved ones, but by the creator of all things. But I'm getting slightly ahead of myself. I asked John a more philosophical question. If I lose my memory, even my memory of my loved ones, to what extent am I still me? To what extent am I still a person? And amazingly, he told me about polls that indicate precisely because of this, that people are more afraid of dementia than they are of cancer. So my, my question is philosophical. If, if, if I lose my memory, even say the memory of my loved ones, to what extent am I still me? To what extent am I still a person? Well, that's the big fear that I think people have, because if you look at the, the polls that reflect on these things, people are more afraid of dementia than they are of cancer. And the reason for that is because you have that sense that you, you lose yourself in that, in that sense. Well, there's a couple of things I, I would say is, the first thing is the question is, how well do you know yourself? You know, I uh, think memory is, is doesn't function in the way that we oftentimes think it functions. It's not like taking a picture. Memory is always constructed and always shifting and changing. So think, think of my own story. Until I was 24, I think it must have been, I thought I was quite a decent fellow, and maybe I was. Then at 24, I, I, I became a Christian, and I discovered that I was actually a fallen sinner and, and that I was in need of redemption and all of these things. In other words, the memories that I had of myself before that were accurate for me, but actually not accurate for the way that the bigger picture is for, uh, for all of us in different ways. And so memory functions that way. So if, we are if who we are is determined by the things that we remember about ourselves, then we're always going to be, it's going to be fragile, it's going to be inaccurate in that sense. The older you get, the less you know because you forget things. Like, but if you've ever had that experience where you're trying to remember something, right? And you remember and trying to remember, and then eventually it comes to you, and that's great. You think it's great. The next time you're trying to remember that thing, you will not go back to the original memory. You go back to the t last time you remembered it. And each time you remember it, you have a different set of emotions, a different set of feelings. So you actually remember it in a, in a completely different way. So the accumulation of memory is not just getting more and more accurate, it's actually dependent on your context and how you are. So as a theologian, my sense is that the way, best way is for us to think about that is to recognise that our identity doesn't come from ourselves. Our identity is who we are in Christ. And Paul says in Colossians that who are as hidden in Christ. So even the things that we know about ourselves are only partial. There's still much more to learn about ourselves. And so my sense is that when you begin to forget things in, in, in the way that you're describing, that means it's a source of lament, a source of sadness, but it's not a source of existential loss because at the heart of our faith is this idea that we're held in God's memory. We're held in, in, in our, our being in Christ. And we can be assured that even though we may forget everything that we think we know, God will never forget us. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. The fifth commandment of the famous Ten Commandments reads, Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The word honour here, as in honour your father and mother, is the Hebrew word kaved. 
It basically means to be heavy. Uh, it's like the word gravitas in Latin. It means heavy or weighty or important. Now, kaved, the Hebrew term, frequently is used of giving glory to God. Glory and heaviness are basically the same idea. So the fifth commandment asks that we give deep, almost divine respect to parents. But what does this mean? Well, for kids, this means obedience. But there are implications for adult children too. For adults, this means supporting parents. How do I know this? Well, because Jesus said so. And he said that not to support your elderly parents is to break the fifth commandment. Here's Mark chapter 7. You have let go of the commands of God, Jesus said, and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So here is Jesus taking on the Pharisees over their interpretation of the fifth commandment. They thought you could get around the fifth commandment by calling various resources you have uh, dedicated to God so that they were sacred and not able to be used to help anyone else. So you could call your field sacred, korban, and therefore you didn't have to sell it if your parents were destitute. So avoiding offering material support to older parents, according to Jesus, breaks the fifth commandment. Caring for elderly parents actually became a really important ministry in the early church. Already in the middle of the first century, we have evidence of this in the letter called 1 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, he writes. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Them's fighting words. Already by the time this passage was written, the church had established a system of care for elderly parents who didn't have family that would look after them. Yes, it's a Christian duty to care for your elderly parents, but when that care isn't there, the church stepped in to support as best it could. Greece and Rome had very little by way of philosophical reasoning to guarantee the weightiness, the honour of those who lacked social utility. So at one end of life, infanticide was rife. Newborns weren't worth much in certain contexts, and so they could be gotten rid of. But at the other end of life, welfare for the aged and the infirm 
was non-existent. Christianity changed all that. It inherited the Jewish Old Testament theology of the weightiness of all human beings, especially the elderly. And Christianity opened up care facilities to Jew, non-Jew, believer, and non-believer. By the fourth century, Basil the Great founded the world's first healthcare center in the 360s AD. He called it his poor house, and he employed live-in medical staff who cared for the sick, drawing on the best traditions of secular Greek medicine. The healthcare center included separate departments, one for the poor, one for the homeless, and so on. But there was a whole center for the aged and infirm. And so was born, a tradition we now take for granted. Considering the elderly weighty, honorable, and looking after them. It's something we need now more than ever. You can press play now. So John, it sounds like a lovely idea that people are safe in the memory of God, even if they don't have their own memories. But what good is that, or what sense can be made of that for someone who's not a Christian believer. I mean, you've used highly theological language that, that is appropriate, but is there anything here for someone who's not a believer? Yeah, I mean, I think that the way I would think about it is that applies to everybody in, in, in two ways. One, effectively, God loves everybody, so therefore the love of God is always available to you. Even though you're going through difficult times, that love is available to you, especially full stop. But the other thing I would say, the second thing I would say would be that the lesson that we learn from that is that memory belongs not just to ourselves, but also to our community. And so when you forget something, the job of your community, be that your family, your friends, whoever it is, is to hold your memory for you. So within the Christian tradition, you would talk about the body of Christ as being a place where that would be would happen. But any community that loves that and cares for that individual can hold their memory for them. It can be that space where, even though things are changing sometimes radically, that your, your, your memory of that individual and your love for that individual continues and your desire to communicate that love continues. No matter what stage we are on our dementia journey, people can appreciate love and can appreciate friendship and can appreciate people around them who, who care for them in that sense. And I think it's through that conduit that we get to that stage where it's safe to advance into your dementia journey because there are people there that can, can hold you. Yes, is this what you meant when you wrote in an article in Christianity Today some years ago now, one of the fundamental symptoms of dementia isn't forgetting, but being forgotten. Can you explain that sentence to me? Yes. So one of the phenomena that people experience a lot is people begin to talk about them as if they're not there. So they'll say, oh, well, he or she's not the person that they used to be, or I'd rather not visit them because I'd rather remember them the way, the way they were. Uh, and all that language distances you from the person. And it's very quickly you forget that the person still is the person. 
And so whilst dementia is difficult because you lose your memory, it's actually the fact that people forget about you that brings about the most pain in that situation because your friends disappear very quickly. Just as soon as you, I mean, there's lots of research to show this. Your friends disappear really quickly as soon as you get a, di a, a diagnosis of dementia. Nothing has to happen. But as soon as you have that diagnosis, because it's culturally stigmatized, people begin to distance themselves. And you can tell that through the language and then language leads to practice. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight. Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The Welsh poet Dylan Thomas and his poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, memorably records our discomfort with death. It's not specifically about dementia, but it does address our anger over ageing and our struggle to hold on to memory. Some modern poets have reflected on the ravages of dementia. Glenn Campbell sang about his own Alzheimer's in the song, I'm Not Going to Miss You. Elvis Costello's Veronica is about an elderly woman who can barely remember who Veronica is. And Ed Sheeran's A Fire Love speaks of the pain of losing a grandfather who can no longer recognise his grandson. These are heavy burdens to carry. So how do you carry them well? I think the family is paramount, actually. I think they're the most important thing of all because they give you continuity of self and we all need continuity of self as we change and adapt. And you can go back to your family and get the support. They know your story best and they can help you so much. Jean Island is a pastoral carer for Baptist Care. She spent the last 25 years caring for older people. She's also the author of multiple courses designed to train volunteers and aged care staff to help people age meaningfully. She says it begins with the family being present. They reassure the resident or the person moving and, and they can make them feel far more comfortable. They can form, help them form friendships within the new venue that they're living and they can take away the fear and the loneliness and mitigate a lot of the things that happen. There's so much loss when people move into care of any kind and 
if their family are there regularly to support and come in, and especially if they come and visit and actually mix in themselves with the people that, that they're now, they're, they're, their loved ones now living with. We had one lady who came in with dementia and she had many falls and her daughter-in-law and son used to come to visit every Wednesday and every Saturday morning and they were um, delightful people, bubbly people themselves and the mum would sit with them and a number of others in this little sitting room and they would read stories and take, say poetry and all that sort of thing and the residents, the other people that were living in the in same environment would sit around too and they'd all get involved in this process. And the mum felt very important because her family were there to support them as well. And they used to bring in treats and little things to do. And the, actually the daughter-in-law was a, a um, children's book writer and they, she'd sometimes bring in her latest book and they'd all share that. And it was really lovely because they also form relationships with the staff and everybody grew to love that family and, and the mother settled very quickly. Jean says the alternative is hard to watch. People will come and be dumped, literally dumped by their family because they have other commitments and can't do things. And they, I've seen people, one lady I remember when I was working in a different place, whose son came up from Melbourne. Her husband died and she was unable to live at home by herself. And her son came up from Melbourne. He packed up the house. He took all the clothes out of her cupboard. She'd come from the hospital to us and he dumped them on her bed and left her there and sold the house and that was it. Her grief was terrible. She took such a long time to settle in. She hated it and she did eventually settle, but it was a very sad and long drawn out process for her. The key, Jean says, isn't just spending time with them. It's valuing their story. To have our story heard and valued is the most important thing that any of us can have when we get older. If people patiently and lovingly listen and don't correct or anything like that, they just accept what is your story. It's very validating of who you are and and that you matter. It tells you very clearly that you matter. You're still valuable. And so I think storytelling is very important. And also, but with people with dementia, if you sit around and start playing music or talking stories, I sometimes just sit down and talk about, you know, what kind of lollies did you eat when you were a child or where did you go for your holidays when you were little? And they come out with wonderful stories and the sharing of the stories brings comfort, brings back memories and makes them feel valued and important. I've seen people who have no, uh, not verbal even, you know, they just say blah, 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 or something because of their dementia. And I've seen them in church services that we have, little simple services, sing and cry because of hymns, but they sing all the words of the hymn that they've known, a loved, familiar hymn, they'll sing it perfectly and you think 
that's amazing <laughs> because it's there. It's there within them. And it's very important that... Jean says even patients with the most severe dementia still have much to offer those around them. Absolutely. I absolutely think they have much to contribute. And honestly and truthfully, I absolutely love them because they have a wonderful living in the here and now, uh, even though they can't remember what they did two minutes later, two minutes before previously, but they're just delightfully honest. They, they just see what is there and they comment on it. You know, I have one lady say to me once, you've been eating too many baked potatoes, <laughs> something that you would not normally say. And I said, yes, that's true. <laughs> and they're just delightful. And they, they, you know, if they want to sing, they sing. And all that sort of thing. And the, the, some of the inhibitions that we, you know, socially discern and say we won't, won't do that, they've lost those and they just do it. And it's quite delightful. In the West, our idea of ageing meaningfully is tied up with our idea of personal autonomy, our ability to decide for ourselves and pursue those courses of action which lead to our happiness. So we're only ageing well so long as we retain that ability to choose our best life, something that decreases the older we get, and especially in cases of dementia. And this in turn has led to some concerning developments in laws governing euthanasia. A 2018 report into medical assistance in dying in Canada noted that the three most frequently mentioned end-of-life concerns were loss of autonomy, 91%. Decreasing ability to participate in activities that made life enjoyable, 86%, and the loss of dignity, 71%. In the Netherlands, euthanasia has been legal for 15 years or more. Now, Dutch law requires that individuals must be suffering from unbearable or untreatable medical conditions before they can be granted access to a medically assisted death. But there's a very real debate going on about extending euthanasia laws to include cases of what they call completed life or tiredness of life. See the show notes for an article on it. The current rules have actually already been used to include cases of people suffering from dementia. Some listeners may remember Professor Charles Camozzi, an ethicist from Fordham University. He spoke to us in episode 76, Against Euthanasia. But then later, as the dementia progressed, uh, they checked in with her again and, and they said, are you sure you don't want to do this? And she said, no, you know, not yet. And they asked her again and she said, no, not yet. And then they asked her a third time and they said, no, not yet. And the, the medical team and her family were starting to get frustrated because they had decided this is what was in her best interest. She had, re she had requested it earlier. And so their solution to this problem was to essentially give her a sedative in her coffee and kill her without her consent. The uh, doctor who, the physician who was involved in this was found not guilty of anything by a Dutch court. So when something like that can happen, you've seen the kind of slippage where we go from, again, my, my life, my autonomy, my body, my choice to a culture kind of deciding, well, you know, who would want to live a life with later stage dementia? Well, it was this person who said that she didn't want to die, but she was killed anyway. 
So are you saying life should be preserved at all costs, that there's an absolute duty to sustain life? Is that the tradition you're coming from? No, no, not at all. Making it clear that so-called vegetables are full human beings like you or you and me, that prenatal human beings are human beings like, like you and me, that our grandparents or parents, when they reach the later stage of dementia and lose their uh, rationality and self-awareness, like at least as you and I have it, remain like you and me. It doesn't follow at all that we just do everything we possibly can to keep them alive. It does follow we don't aim at their deaths, I, I would say. So we, it does follow that we don't say it's time for you to die now. You say something about how you feel euthanasia and the debates and changes in our view about euthanasia in the West have also changed our perception of aging and personhood. I think they have. And it's interesting that we're talking about dementia, but certain places in, in Europe, as soon as you have a, a diagnosis of dementia, you can go to your general practitioner and ask to be euthanized. And if that doctor says no, then you can find one and eventually will be. Even though there's no significant change at that moment in time, so what's the problem? The problem is people are anticipating the future. And so you have a really negative view of the future, which then is translated into, well, dementia is worse than death, so therefore death seems to be the most appropriate way to think, think about it. And so I think that, that idea of, of projecting negativity into aging and into things like dementia is fundamentally important, which, I, which is why I think it's very important when we think about you, you know, issues around euthanasia to think about what we're doing now in a time, not simply in a time of crisis. How are we understanding aging just now? How are we creating images of positive aging that can at least enable people to have an informed choice and a, and a positive informed choice when it comes to whatever crisis point they, they come to? I mean, there's some really interesting research done by a guy called uh, William Breitbart, who is a, a, a psychotherapist who focuses on uh, oncology at Sloan Kettering University in New York. And he noticed that people were coming to him, asking him for physician-assisted suicide. So people who were at the end of their lives were coming to him and asking him to take their lives. And so the way that he framed it was he thought, well, what's happening here is people are feeling that they're meaning, they have no meaning in their life, that they're a burden, that they have nothing to look forward to. And so he set up what he described as meaning-centered psychotherapy groups where people right at the end of their lives, and in America that means the last six or eight weeks of your life, got together and discussed issues around spirituality. Spirituality being a general search for meaning and purpose and value and hope. And he discovered that at the end of that process, many people stopped asking the question because they discovered that they didn't have to think of themselves as a burden or as having no future, etc. And so because they were given a slightly different perspective on the question, the ethical question shifted and changed because they no longer asked it in that sense. So I think there's something about creating a culture where we can talk about these things, where we can give different alternative understandings of what ageing it is, and even ageing as it relates to dementia. And then at the end of the day, people will make their own choices if it's available to them, but at least it will be an informed choice that recognises that actually getting old is not so bad. And even getting dementia is not the way that we thought about it before. 
The Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, often speak of old age as having honour and purpose. Is not wisdom found among the aged, the book of Job says? Does not long life bring understanding? And the Psalms speak of a spirituality of the elderly, a connection between the creator, the older person, and the generations to follow. You have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, Sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvellous deeds. Even when I am old and grey, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts of all who are to come. What do you think are the key things that the Christian scripture says about ageing? Well, I think one of the first things you know, and, and basic things is, is that Human beings are made in the image of God. The idea of the image of God is very, very important. So historically, there's lots of ways in which the image of God has has worked itself out. You know, sometimes it's, it's to do with our human beings in the same shape of God or are human beings rational and intelligent the way that God is. But it seems to me that the most helpful in terms of age, age and the way of thinking about the image of God is that we're in relationship. Human beings are in relationship. Something about the relationality of God that reflects itself in human relationships. You know, God walks with Adam in the in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't walk with any other creature. There's something very beautiful about that. Like. And the thing about recognizing that right at the beginning is that you're safe. That image never changes. If the image is intellect and reason, then actually the older we get, the less we are in the image of God, because all of us they begin to deteriorate cognitively or get old. But relationality, to think that we are human beings who have a relationship with one another, a relationship with God that continues throughout our lives, I think gives us a firm foundation for ageing and for the priorities of ageing, which is to sustain these kinds of relationships, even through the shifts and changes that we go through as we as we get older. So with that as a foundation, I think that's really actually a very important aspect of ageing well. We all face ageing. We will all face dementia, whether it be in our family or in the families of those we love or even in ourselves. And we all have a role to play in loving the aged. What is your best advice for how to engage with that loved one with dementia, given that many listeners will know someone with dementia? Well, a couple of things I would say. One, I think it's important always to give people the benefit of the doubt. Now, by that, I simply mean that not to be drawn into a very pessimistic view whereby, whereby it's, it becomes almost impossible to see anything positive in the situation. So to keep your mind open and to, to keep the possibility of goodness in the midst of this difficult situation. And of course, you can't do that by yourself. 
So what you need is friends around you who can support you, who can lament with you. And what I mean by that is you need to have a space to go to where you can really be honest about how difficult the situation. So give people the benefit of the doubt, look for the positive, but recognize that within yourself, there's a brokenness, there's a sadness, there's something that needs to be articulated to you. And you need people that will allow you to do that. And the third thing is respite. So my mum's 99 just now, and uh, she's 100 next year, but you could have probably worked that out for yourself. The She's still at home, but she needs a, a lot of care. And so we as a family, we somebody there every night and for most of the day. Uh, and it's great that we can do that because we didn't want to put her into a home, but it was, it's hard work. In fact, it's exhausting. And what I find is that if I'm spending time with my mum or if I'm living at my mum's house for a few days, whatever it is, if I can just get out for an hour, that's great. So if a neighbour can come in and just let me go for a walk for an hour, I come back and I'm much better with her. And I'm much more peaceful and I'm much more comfortable and it's a good thing to do. So providing respite, even if it's for short periods of time, enables carers to care much more effectively. So I think these three things are, are beginning points for creating a context where care, which is really hard work, can be something that is manageable. There was sort of just a gradual loss of, uh, of the, the cues, the normal things that we take for granted. So he lost a lot of that initiative to, to make even eventually simple decisions, what to wear or what was happening next. He'd always been a, a happy potterer. He and mum would had very much had their own interests and they were just companionable potterers and then I remember mum saying he just sort of hovers and I suggest different things but he's just lost that he was just a bit lost and even simple things became harder and harder. That's my darling Buff talking about her dad Harry who died in 2020 after several years with dementia. He was a beautiful man, a scientist and a poet a zealous missionary to Africa, and perhaps the most sensitive person I've ever known. It was a privilege to have him for so many years as my personal pastor and chief advisor. He started to go walking and getting lost too, didn't he? Yeah, I think he knew where he was wanted to be, but there were a couple of times where mum would ring me from work and I would just have to leave and I'd call the police and I'd they would say, oh, you have to fill out a missing persons report. And I'd be like, no, you don't understand. He's just, he's not lost like that. Um, and then eventually I'd get a call from them going, oh yeah, actually, he's with this lady. He was about to walk on the freeway. Um, and even as you are driving, you just don't know what you'll find. And it was, oh, it was yeah, very frightening occasionally. So he went into care for how long was it? Two years? It was a few years, yeah. And there was marked decline, right? But tell me what you found hardest. He had sort of mini strokes. He had, and that affected his ability to speak. And I think the loss of that was, was really hard because he was just so beautiful with words and language. And so, yeah, I missed that. You could still see it in his eyes. Um, a lot of things were still in his eyes. Oh, sometimes when we were talking and he couldn't find the word and 
he'd sit there and you're never sure whether to help him or whether that would be patronising or appear that I was impatient. And I remember asking him once, do you want me to help you find the word? Or are you okay if I just stand there watching you struggle to find it? And he said, oh, maybe let me struggle for a little bit first and then help me. Bless him, he could talk about his condition and we could, we could look at it scientifically as the disease it was. You worked in dementia as well, and then, you know, had to have this very personal thing. How did you Christianly think about it? What, what thoughts gave you any comfort or balance? Dad was always very sure that this life was not all there is. And he had a very strong faith in the new creation and in what would be next. And that helped him. So he did go into it with great courage. But what helped you? Oh, um, that. <laughs> that, I knew he was afraid at times. I found things he'd written, researching ahead of time about the stages of dementia. and. I knew he was afraid and that he found some things horrific. But spiritually, I think with dementia, you often think, oh, people say, oh, does he still know you? Does he know who you are? And I'd be like, I don't think that's, I haven't asked. And I wouldn't expect him to know my name, but I can tell that most of the time he knows I know him mm. and he can tell he's loved and I would just remind him of stories and every now and then you'd get a, a look perhaps that something was familiar, but mostly not. But I think he just enjoyed the fact that he was known by us. And that was a comfort to me was that he knew, he was known by God in that way and known by us. And that's what makes us important and significant even when we can't do as much as we used to or remember things. like what we're doing here at Underceptions, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a review. It really helps people find the show in the sea of podcasts that are out there. And why not share an episode with a friend? Our audience is growing and we're so grateful to all of you who are already telling people about our little show. You might also consider making a one-off donation to Underceptions that will help us with the cost of making this show and the other projects we're working on. Just go to underceptions.com and click the giant donate button. While you're there, send us a question and I'll try answer it in this season's Q&A episode. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alastair Belling is a writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston is my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is chief finance and operations consultant and editing is by Richard Humwee.
Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast. If you're playing along in our two millionth download competition, here's the code word. Memory. Memori. Memory. Memori. <laughs> you got that? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> you jerks. <laughs> oh, shut up. Put the whole, put the whole oh, thing in. Whole thing in there. Oh, God. <laughs> I've got to watch that little red button down. Did West Wing teach you nothing? You guys are bad.